We're going to pick up where we were and let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've allowed us to gather as your flock with our precious brothers and sisters in Christ to open up the scriptures and to see the glorious truths that you've chosen to reveal to us. May we have a high respect for the authority of scripture and for the work of the Holy Spirit. We give you the thanks, praise, and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm excited to share, and same PowerPoint as last time, but we're going to start with the Psalm 110, verse 1. When you see how often Psalm 110, verse 1 is cited in the New Testament or alluded to, you start realizing that the doctrine of the ascension and the, what's called the heavenly session, Christ at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, you start realizing that this is a very important central doctrine to the Christian faith. And it gets a passing reference every once in a while, but how often do you ever hear a sermon on the ascension of Christ? And I think, you know, Eric and I were talking about this as we were coming up the elevator, I think that this is one of the reasons for all the mysticism is that people would rather go out in the solitude and silence in the wilderness to see if they could hear voices than to believe that Jesus Christ bodily ascended into heaven and ever lives to make intercession for us. And that's emphasized in Hebrews, it's emphasized in Romans, it's mentioned in Peter. It's very important to us and the question is whether we're going to have a failure of faith or we're going to believe what God said. A failure of faith says, well, I don't know, like they did when they built a golden calf. This Moses, we don't know what happened to him. We can't see him. Okay, so they used the fact that Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law as the reason to build a golden calf. And so here we have Jesus ascended to heaven and they're seeing for us. And, well, we can't see or feel Jesus. Why don't we go in the wilderness and commune with the spirits? Of course, they don't call it that. They say it's Christ that comes to them. But there's no promise that he will. And when we ignore the truth of scripture and go do things our own way presumptuously, we can't expect that God's going to answer our beck and call. All right. So let's get down to where we were. This is the chiasm that we looked at. It goes a certain direction and goes back the other direction. And in red is the emphasis, whom you crucified. Compatibilism we talked about last week. Psalm 16, 16.10. Here we go. We're going to start right here. Psalm 110 and verse 1. The ascension uh, and the exaltation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Last week we saw that he was bodily raised from the dead. That's absolutely essential. Even the most liberal theologians and pastors will admit some sort of a spiritual resurrection, but they won't admit the bodily resurrection because that would be a miracle. That's an obvious miracle. Harry Emerson Fosdick, the famous liberal who wrote a book at the time of the fundamentalist controversy, Shall the Fundamentalist Win, says Fosdick. He didn't believe in a bodily resurrection, just a spiritual one. Okay, and so, which case there'd still be a body in the tomb, wouldn't there? And we saw last week that there are plenty of people there with means, motive, and opportunity to produce the dead body, but there was none. And they all agreed that the tomb was empty. Okay, so, and feel free to ask questions as we go. Psalm 22, 33 through 35. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
Psalm 110 in verse 1. Now, this passage, as I said earlier, is cited or alluded to more than any other Old Testament passage that's cited in the New. And I don't think it's stretching anything to say, therefore, it's important. It's important to the gospel. It's important to the Christian claim. And it's important for us to understand what are the implications of this. Why is he at the right hand? What does that signify? Authority. He, yeah, authority, preeminence. Eric has the mic. We'll see how far. He may have to make a little move to... You just go ahead and give the answer. Um, a, a place of authority? Now, one of the things that's emphasized in the New Testament, and I have a whole clipboard full of verses about this that don't even fit on one page, is that Jesus... He's raised, he ascends on high to the right hand of God and sends the Holy Spirit. This is highly emphatic, highly important. So he goes and sends the Spirit, and he promised that that's what he would do. In John 14, 15, and 16, those three chapters about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And, well, Mike, you're sitting right by the mic. Could you look at John 14, 26? And then we're going to look at Jesus citing Psalm 110, verse 1, in order to foil the Sadducees and Pharisees. When you found it, find it, excuse me, John 14, 26. John 14, 26. Yeah. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name. He will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Right. And so the apostles were three years with Jesus. They were witnesses of the resurrection eventually. And they were the ones chosen by Christ and taught for those three years. And uh, the promise is that they would remember what he taught them. They become the witnesses and the writers of the New Testament. So it makes them unique. Now, in Luke 20, 41 through 44, if everybody could turn to that, Let's see Jesus confounding his critics by asking them a question they cannot answer. Luke 20, 41 through 44. I'll read it once you got to it. And he said to them, how is it that they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. David, therefore, calls him Lord. How is he his son? I looked it up in the Septuagint and just used curious twice. Do you know what the Hebrew is, Eric? Yeah, you know, what's really fascinating is the in the Hebrew of Psalm 110.1, it says Yahweh. It's a, literally, it says an utterance of Yahweh to my Adonai. Yeah, it uses two different words. Exactly. And what's so fascinating is there's a, a suffix on Adonai, and it's a, it's a pronominal suffix that shows possession. So it's my Adonai. And the reason that's significant is David is the speaker. And right even here in Acts 2.35, we're seeing evidence of that where it says he himself says. And that's what's called an adjectival intensive. So Peter's making the point that David himself was saying this, that Yahweh was speaking to my Lord, my Adonai. So it couldn't be referring to David. No. And so you have an inner, really, speech between two members of the Trinity. It's exactly. That's what it is. And we know that if we know our Christian theology, we understand the New Testament. But the Pharisees, they don't have an answer to that. Yes. You know, even in their traditions, well, well can't be David. They, there's no answer. But here... Jesus himself identifies Psalm 110 in verse 1 as being messianic. And I think Jesus is a reliable source. <laughs> you might think that that's obvious, but it isn't. I remember when I started working on apologetics and correcting air and stuff in the 80s, 
I turned on one of the Christian channels, if there is such a thing, and Kenneth Copeland was on there teaching on the parable, the sower and the seeds, and it was all about money, okay? And so I'm, you know, in my 30s, you know, I've been through Bible college, hadn't yet been to seminary, doesn't matter, I guess, but I'm watching it, I said, wait a second, didn't Jesus interpret this? So I got my Bible out and I dug around and I found the parable of the sower and the seeds. Or the, and he did interpret it. But Ken Copeland has his own interpretation. He didn't need Jesus. So here's a little hermeneutical principle, no extra charge. If Jesus gives the interpretation, that's the right one. <laughs> All right. Seems simple to us. Now what about, the, yes, um, Peter. Hold on, hold on. Well, it, it became clear enough on the day of Pentecost because he actually raised from the dead. And he pre was raised from the dead. And he predicted that. And so now we can see how he can be both David's son, because he's the promised son, 2 Samuel 7, 14, and the Lord. We understand that. So, yeah, that's true. But the hearers on the day of Pentecost, once the resurrection already happened, could see that, understand it. 3,000 believed it, but there's an awful lot of them that didn't. How many of you know that there are things that are true that people refuse to believe for political reasons? This is human nature. I have my party or my sect or my group that I follow, and if somebody says something that disagrees with us, then they must be wrong. And that's exactly what's going on now. There are other misinterpretations of that. Notice the last phrase here, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, I was mentioning in the 80s when I listened to Ken Copeland misinterpret a parable. There have been all sorts of misinterpretations of this until, okay? And the one that was popular and probably still is, was a post-millennial, sometimes amillennial interpretation that says Jesus is stuck in heaven and he can't come back until we create the, the kingdom and defeat all God's enemies. The church is going to do it. He, there was a guy by the name of Earl Polk who wrote a book called Hell, Held in the Heavens Until. And it was just post-millennial. And he was claiming that we're Christ ourselves. So we're the incarnation. We're Christ. We defeat God's enemies. And then we can say, okay, Jesus, we did a job. Now you can come back. Now that was very popular. And Polk actually, uh, his church in Georgia, which, by the way, there was a big scandal because it turns out the, his uh, brother's son, who became the pastor, turned out to be actually his son because this Polk was having an affair with his brother's wife. But never mind, we're Christ, the incarnation. We just can't remember who our wife is. <laughs> we need photo IDs on marriage certificates only. Whatever the case, the fact is, the one who is the one who makes the enemies a footstool to Messiah's feet? God. God the Father. And so the defeat of God's enemies doesn't happen through the church. And the people who claim this end up in these really weird little churches that uh, they can't even get that stuff straight. So don't believe all these false ideas. Give God the glory. God will defeat his enemies. We're not capable of defeating all of God's enemies as the church. Now... Let's all look at John 15, 26. This is really an important passage. I was digging around my old church computer, and I found some PowerPoints that were done three or four years ago, one of which was called How to Discern a True Work of the Spirit. And I found it. What do you know? The only place in my whole life I'm organized is on hard drives. I keep my hard drive organized, not my office. So anyhow, the interesting thing about this is the, the preponderance of evidence that how we know the Holy Spirit's at work is that 
the person who claims to be motivated by the Spirit confesses Christ over and over and over again. It's overwhelming evidence that the true work of the Spirit causes us to confess Christ. And those who are looking for signs and wonders or feelings or I don't know what they're looking for, numbers of people going to a church, you can look at all of these things and it's not what the New Testament says about how we know the work of the Spirit. It's the confessing, witnessing, and testifying about Christ. And some of these passages I've already had, had you uh, look up, but John 15, 26, very important. I'll read it to you. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, notice Jesus ascends, sits at the right hand of, the, of God, and the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. Later in church history, they had almost a big fight about that. You know, whether it was and the Son, there, there was a clause. You know, I don't consider creeds and councils and popes and bishops to be infallible interpreters of Scripture. And I don't believe creeds from Protestantism are infallible either. The only thing that's infallible is Scripture itself. And I understand that we should have due concern about easily departing from what's always been believed, but we have to be able to do our own understanding and work of Scripture and prophesy and have it judged. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son. Then he says, modifying that, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness of me. So there's how you know that this is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we don't see, there's no sign or something that says, oh, this is the Holy Spirit, this is a demonic imposter. People that go here and there trying to find the Spirit, whether they're looking for signs and wonders or religious feelings or personal revelations, I don't know what they're looking for, but one of the things you will know about the Holy Spirit is he testifies about Christ. And so if you go and Christ is being preached, remember Paul talked about preaching Christ and made it synonymous with preaching the gospel? That is a work of the Spirit that we can be sure of. I got a call from a fellow who had visited us. He's going to be in town just one night. He wants me to meet with him and his pastor because they got booted out of a church for preaching verse by verse through the Bible. But um, something I've been thinking about, and I hope to share with him and the pastor, it's just if you put this all together, it becomes obvious that there's nothing else to do besides proclaim the truth and do so in context as it was intended by the author. Why is that true? One of the things that we've learned in Galatians, and when Paul asked this rhetorical question, how did you receive the Spirit? By works of the law or hearing of faith? Applied answer, hearing of faith. So having the faith of Abraham means you, you have the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, that being the case, let's just, do you all believe that? The true born, if we're born again, we're born of the Spirit. The Spirit bears our weaknesses. And so on. So that's true of all Christians. There may be some people that are part of the visible church that are not really part of the invisible church, and they won't respond the same thing to Bible teaching, same way. They'll get annoyed with it. They'll say, it's not meeting my needs. Now, listen, that being the case, Jesus Christ died, was bodily raised from the dead, bodily ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, sent forth the Spirit from the Father and the Son, ever lives to make intercession for us. We are the people of faith who have the faith of Abraham, who confess Christ. That's how we know the Holy Spirit's at work. We confess Christ. The Holy Spirit came upon Peter on the day of Pentecost. What did he do? He preached Christ. Absolutely. The Holy Spirit comes upon Stephen. He preached Christ. Holy Spirit came upon Simeon. He preached Christ. That's what happens. That's how you discern. So you go to church week after week after week and nobody's preaching the gospel. The Holy Spirit, I don't care how many people fall on the floor or swing and jump and shout and 
they're not preaching Christ. Even uh, the famous Azusa Street Revival, I have a book that I was required to get when I was at North Central Bible College, which was Pentecostal. They told a story of this thing going on, this revival, and a preacher from somewhere came in and preached on this verse that I just mentioned, John 15, which one is it, 26? Yeah, and he says, the Holy Spirit comes to glorify Christ, not for us to have all this stuff. And uh, there was a guy that was right on. If this is a work of the Spirit, we should be preaching Christ. Okay, so that being true, and if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That being true, the Scripture, having been inspired by the Holy Spirit, is our word from God given to us. Right? Okay, so we have the Spirit within us, the Holy Spirit. We love Him. He intercedes for us. He's the one who poured out the Spirit. We have the Scriptures. When we prophesy, which we'll talk about in 1 Corinthians 14, I think Eric has, that is, encourage one another in the truth and correct one another if we go off base because the Holy Spirit didn't inspire false applications, okay? This, there's something that's true, completely true and always true about Christians that has been true for the entire church age, and that is that when the Word of God is taught clearly, authoritatively from Scripture to Christians, there's a, a work of God that's, I don't want to use some modern business term. I'm thinking about synergy, but I don't like that term. Uh, we had to read a book by a Mormon about that when I was in seminary. I wasn't too happy. But he works together with, let's say it that way. The Holy Spirit works together with the Word of God and changes us. Now, the big problem, the big error... The, the foolishness that's overtaken seminaries and churches and what have you is the idea that, well, we already know enough scripture. We haven't done half of it. Let's just go to work. Okay, that's what Rick Warren said. I quoted him and rebuked him for saying that. Well, it shows a fundamental false understanding of the church, the Holy Spirit, preaching, means of grace, it's all confused. Because they think if I give you five steps how to be a good husband, that's more profound than Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands love your wives. What's the difference? Well, we don't know how to do it, or I don't, my wife's an egg, well, how anybody could love her? Don't say that. I'll do, I will give you one point. Foolishness. Listen, when God says something, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And something powerful and supernatural is at work that's beyond just simply knowing steps on how to do something. And so the psychological approach to Christianity, the dumbing down of it, it's all contributed to this. We don't believe that God will do what he said he was going to do. And me, the listener who hears the word preached and believes the word written, who's indwelt by the Spirit, God could even cause some sap like me to be able to love my wife. Because this speaks of Christ in the church. I know Eric's going to preach on this. But does a seminar put on by psychologists have a more profound effect? I would say no. We're not lacking information. We're lacking belief in the power of God. And that's why Paul asked the Galatians when they became fools, bewitched fools. How did you receive the spirit? By works of the law or by hearing of faith? So if Eric and I and anybody else preaches the word of God to you clearly, authoritatively, according to the author's meaning, there's where we receive the spirit and there's where we grow and there's the power of God. But if we give you psychological counsel that may or may not do any good. It's not the same thing. Does that make sense to you? 
And so I'm going to encourage you that, Pastor, you're doing the right thing. Don't give up on the work of the Holy Spirit and bail out and go to human wisdom. It will not have the same effect. And remember, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. I was, I received a lot of emails over the years accused of quenching the Holy Spirit. I've been told that I can't tell you how many times. They don't believe that preaching the gospel has anything to do with the work of the Spirit. And so if I correct a guy who blasphemed Christ by saying that he lost his divinity, I'm quenching the Spirit because that guy has more manifestations. Well, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, testifies of Christ. He doesn't teach that Christ lost his divinity. So here's one to look up. Um, Robin, do you want to look up uh, Hebrews 1.3, this glorious section at the beginning of Hebrews that tells about Christ being greater than the angels? Three. And then, Joel, could you look up Hebrews 10, 12? Hebrews 10, 12. And Luann, Hebrews 12, 2. Okay, uh, Robin. Hebrews 1, 3. Yes. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. There's more. When he made purifications. Yeah. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is glorious. Uh, it's almost impossible for us to study Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 and verse 4 without, I don't know, it just makes me excited how glorious Christ is in the language in the Greek, and it comes out pretty good in English, they used to express this. It's just absolutely amazing. And um, it talks again about Psalm 110, verse 1. So the next one was Hebrews 10, 12. Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. There you go again. And then Luann, Hebrews 12, 2. And if you don't mind, I'll start at verse 1 just you, to get the whole idea. Uh, do what you got to do. Yeah, verse 1 is fine. <laughs> I thought you meant Hebrews 1, 1. Oh, I yeah. thought, no, well, I we got go about 20 far. minutes. <laughs> How's your voice? Okay, 12, 1. I'll be fine. <laughs> Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So this is oft repeated. Let me read one, 1 Peter 3, 22. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Uh, yes. I wanted to bring up something that I noticed reading through um, the first Kings. Can Hold on here. Yes. I just wanted to bring up something I was reading. I noticed when I was reading through first Kings a while back. Um, there's a part where Bathsheba is approached by Adonijah, and she want, he wants um, her to go into Solomon and ask for him to marry Abishag the Shumanite. So Bathsheba goes in, and then um, the king rises up to meet her, Solomon, and then it says he has a seat brought in for his mother, and she sat on his right hand. And I was thinking about that, the right hand, <laughs> and that that was probably significant at the time when I read it. Well, that would be the place of authority. But re making a request also, maybe, like because it says Jesus sits at the right hand. To yeah, things weren't people. going well then. This is Bathsheba. <laughs> yeah. Remember last week I talked about interpreting narrative and how authors give 
clues. See, narrative, some, some will say, well, it's a narrative, you don't, you, it's just a story. Have you ever heard that? It's just a story. You, you have to go to Romans or somewhere, you'll never get anything from a story. Not true. When a biblical author inspired by the Holy Spirit writes a narrative, he also has a meaning. Okay, even non-literal language, the figurative language has meaning. If you use a figure of speech as an author, you mean something by it. It's not just mean anything, it means what the author means. So one of the things I had to do in one of my seminary classes was to read narrative and see whether what happened was something the author implied was a good thing or a bad thing. And what's the point? A lot of times the point was apostasy, especially in the book of Judges. So it isn't just neutral that so-and-so went and did this. You have authoritative witnesses like the prophets. You have the clues in the text about whether this was good or bad. And sometimes it's not even hard. So-and-so did evil in the sight of God. You don't have to guess. Okay, that was bad. And so one of the mistakes is treating the Bible as if it has some special status in, the, in regard to meaning. But meaning is conveyed as it is in all languages by the author. The difference in the Bible is it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, you want to look at this one. Romans, oops, I, I did that wrong. Romans 8, 34. Let's all turn to that together. I've been thinking about this one a lot. So we have the sending of the Holy Spirit, indwelling believers, the Word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Word of God taught and preached works together with the Holy Spirit who's indwelled us because he's the one that supplied the meaning and brings our minds and our hearts to God and works in us to change us into the image of Christ. This isn't something discernible based on having completed so many steps and then checked them off. This is a process that goes on our entire life. Now, we need even more help than that. We live in a really wicked, sinful world, and we've got enough bad stuff in us. So what else has God provided by the Holy Spirit this work in us and for us. Well, it's Jesus Christ interceding for us. Romans 8:34, which by the way is about the work of the Spirit. Who is the one who condemns? Implied answer? No one. Christ Je Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised who is at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. That's something to believe and to think about. When you have temptation, when you have troubles, when you have trials, when you have reason to doubt, I thought I was a Christian. What's wrong with me? Anybody? Well, maybe I'm the only one who ever felt that way. And you know what's comforting? Jesus Christ at the right hand of God interceding for us. We have access to the throne of grace as prayer is a means of grace. He intercedes for us. That comforts me. Does it comfort you? Me going out into solitude and silence for 15 days with no Bible has some apostate Bible college around here is teaching students to do. Is there's no comfort whatsoever in that. We're bound to be confused, tempted, tried, and our sanity will be questioned in, in our own minds. But in the believing that Jesus Christ is interceding for us and that he cares about us more than anybody on this earth would ever care for us, that he promised to come again for us, that where he is, we might be also. That's got to be comforting. It doesn't mean we don't have temptations. It doesn't mean we don't have trials. It doesn't mean we don't have erroneous thoughts in our mind. But we do have this truth. 
He ever lives to make intercession for us. He's seated at the place of all authority and power. He poured out the Holy Spirit. And the only reason it's comforting to us that he's interceding for us at the right hand of God is because we have the Holy Spirit and we believe it. The issue in the New Testament is to believe, not to appropriate or to uh, go to certain meetings and see angel orbs or whatever it is. We need to believe. I'm going to read to you Acts 5, starting with verse 29, to show the same thing comes up again. Acts 5, 29. One of the ways that writers of narrative let us know what they mean is by repeated themes. And when the repeated themes are in the mouth of authoritative witnesses, it's even more emphatic and more clear that that's important. Now look at this with Peter, the head spokesman, Acts 5.29. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. The, the men said to this pastor, you can't teach verse by verse through the Bible, so he had to decide, you're going to obey God rather than men. Okay? I believe we ought to obey God because we, we believe the work of the Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. Okay, verse 30, but the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. Notice how prominent the resurrection is. Whom you had put to get death, there's human guilt, by hanging him on a cross. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Verse 31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand. Remember they saw Jesus bodily ascending to heaven? The ascension is an important Christian doctrine. We should preach it. His session, as it's called in theology, at the right hand of God is essential. We should preach it. To his right hand as prince and savior. Verse 31, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. There is a key thing that needs to be understood, proclaimed, and laid before the people of God week by week by week, and that is forgiveness of sins. It's thematic in Luke Acts. Jesus made it so when he cited Isaiah in Luke 4.18 and proclaimed release, aphesis, which is the word for forgiveness here, but it literally means release, the release of sins. In Luke 5.32, it says that Jesus came to bring sinners to repentance, release from sins. I remember when my Lutheran buddy, Chris Roseborough, and I were at this high-level conference from an emergent, from the emergent, and they had a communion service, which is, frankly, the weirdest thing I've ever been at. But as it went on, and remember, Chris being Lutheran, one thing that Luther, and I've been reading a lot of Luther, so I can tell you this, he wanted people to know the forgiveness of sins above anything else. He continually talked about forgiveness of sins. And you see it in Lutheran liturgy today because it's something he could never find in, in Rome. He couldn't find the forgiveness of sins. He could just find guilt and retribution. And so as we sat there and they kind of came to the end, I said, let's get out of here. Let's get out of here. I can't take this. It's too yucky. Get out of there. Let's get out of here. Chris said, I want to see what they're going to say. And finally, it was, there was no more to be said. And he said, where's the forgiveness of sins? Well, there isn't any because there are no sin. All paths lead to God. But notice what Peter preached. Repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins turn to God to be converted. The word repent in the Septuagint means to be converted. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him, meaning obey the gospel. Now notice again, we have a work of the Holy Spirit. What happened here through Peter and the others who had received the Spirit in Acts 2? They testified of Christ. The resurrection, the ascension, the forgiveness of sins, 
repentance, all of these things came forward because of the work of the Holy Spirit. They never lost a chance to, to do this. Let's go to the next slide. Acts 2.36. Now, after Peter preached on Psalm 110 and verse 1, he says this, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Notice how many times that gets repeated. Now, this, in this case, it was literal because they, had, they were the people that were there when Christ was crucified. They said, crucify him, turned him over to the Romans. So there was their guilt. There was their guilt. Somebody challenged this group that, um, you know, 2008, whatever it was. It was, remember, Ray Comfort and Todd Friel, the guy's talking about preaching the Ten Commandments. And somebody says, oh, it doesn't work. It, the Ten Commandments, it, it doesn't follow. The, Peter didn't preach the Ten Commandments. And so somebody forwarded me that email, and I looked at it and said, what are you talking about? This Jesus whom you crucified, he's accusing them of breaking the commandment, thou shalt not murder. Now, this isn't justifying anti-Semitism that arose later in church history, saying that Jews were Christ killers, because Peter himself said this is the preordained plan of God. But there was human guilt on the scene of history, and therefore, there was a setup about why to repent. God raised you from the dead, so you should know that that was wrong. Repent. Repent means, in its essence, to be converted or to be turned. You can see that later in Acts. So this uh, made here probably means appointed. So here he is at the right hand of God, the one who was rejected by his own people. Now look at Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? That's very interesting. A lot of uh, contemporary evangelism programs has a little booklet that tells you what the prayer to pray. Accept Jesus in your heart or say these things after me. But that's not a sign of being convicted by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, as it says in the Gospel of John, people will be more than willing to ask God through his spokesman, Peter the preacher, what shall we do? They were stripped bare. They were, their souls were. They were found guilty. Their sins were hanging over their head. They had no, no hope. And they knew it. And they knew what Peter said was true and what he preached was true. And they asked. They're convicted. What, what can we do? Well, I happen to have this book on seven steps to being a better citizen of the United States. No, this isn't about being a better citizen. It's about being converted and serving God on his terms. We don't make this up. It's not terms that we create. So, by the way, I need to answer a question. Someone said, I thought this Sunday school was going to be about means of grace, and we're talking about the gospel here. Well, let me explain something that we've talked about, but maybe not for some years. The gospel proves that God uses means. Okay? God has chosen the foolishness, used ironically, of the message preached to save those who will believe. Okay? God uses means, and the means he uses are the ones that he's ordained. And when we preach according to God's ordained means, we're not putting our faith in ourselves. We're not trusting our own eloquence. We're believing that God's going to use the means he gave to us. And so we can do so in faith. I don't see any promise where God said he'd use somebody's canned idea about 
taking steps. Americans love to take steps of self-betterment. In the 19th century, there were hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of societies to make America a better place. And they were all based on the idea of post-millennialism, that Christ was not going to come and set up the kingdom. We're going to have to do it right now and right here in America. So there's all these things to join and to volunteer and what have you. I'm not against good deeds, but they're not the gospel. All right, so people think that way and they don't get the right message. Let's go to verse 38. Peter said to them, now they asked what to do. First word out of his mouth, repent. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. There's repentance in Luke in the Great Commission, Luke 24, 47, if you want to jot this down. He says that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Peter's in Jerusalem. He's preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins, release from sin. Now that he said this, Jesus, whom you crucified, they had a sense of sin. They were pierced to the heart. That's the convicting work of the Spirit. And he told them what to do, repent. Then it says be baptized. I'll talk about that under means of grace whenever it's my turn to do this again, for the forgiveness of your sins. That's, what did Luke want us to see? This is Dr. Versipa's class I mentioned last week. The astute reader will look at this and say, oh, yes, Luke acts as a two-volume work. Jesus, after his resurrection, instructed his apostles the repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Peter's in Jerusalem. Peter heard Jesus say that. Peter preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So therefore, in the mouth of reliable witnesses, Jesus and Peter, we have the truth. We need look no further. We need not speculate about theological ideas we know right here that this is what God approves, preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, later in Acts, repentance is something that's granted by God, but he uses means. And you will receive the gift of the Spirit. There's that emphatic giving of the Spirit by the exalted one who sits at the right hand of God. He pours out the Spirit. Oh, the time I wasted for 10 or 15 years, my friends, and I'm not blaming anybody. I had the finest teachers in Bible college, but spent all of these years. What comes first? They spoke. Does everybody have to speak in tongues? What comes first, baptism or repentance? What happens? And I'm trying to get an ordo salutis out of all of this, trying this and trying that. Guess what? That's not the author's point, and you can't find an ordo. Ordo salutis, by the way, is Latin for the order of salvation. Sometimes they're baptized and receive the Spirit, uh, Acts 8. Other times, they're told to be baptized. They receive the Spirit, and then they are baptized. This isn't an ordo salutis. It's just telling us what's important to God, and we should have this as part of our practice and our belief and our preaching. Okay? This is what Jesus told Peter to do, and he did it. For the promise... Very, very important. I hope you understand by now. We talk about that a lot in Galatians. If there is a promise, then we have an object that we can put our faith in. God cannot lie. If God gave a promise, we can believe that. Okay? And this is our firewall against mysticism. None of the mystical practices that you can find in a spiritual disciplines book are ordained by God. They're dreamed up. By man, there's no promise for man's speculation about how you might feel closer to God. That's all you need to know. It gets very simple. I wrote a whole article about this Donald Whitney who was teaching his false doctrine in a Reformed seminary. I just read another one. I'll name it name. C.J. Mahaney, same garbage. In fact, he claims he got it for Whitney. No, why do we all have to go running back to Rome? There's no promise of God attached to hanging on a granite wall in shackles 
Well, they don't teach that, no, because they're pragmatists. They say, well, that seems kind of extreme. We'll leave that one out. Let's do the silence and solitude or whatever. Okay? What is the promise? The promise of messianic salvation given to Abraham, given to Isaac, given to Jacob, reiterated through the law in many ways, given to David. Even Habakkuk was waiting for messianic salvation. That was the vision that tarried. Wait for it. It's here. It's now. It's through the Messiah. He ascended into heaven. As it says in Psalm 110.1, he intercedes for us. Thank God for that. And he poured out the Holy Spirit who came upon Peter. And the first thing that happened was he preached Christ. My dear friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, what are we to do? The only thing we can do is preach Christ. Release of sins in the promises of God in which we can put our faith. Do you believe that? We can believe the promise of God. And so, let's see what's next here. Aha! See, I, well, I'm four minutes late. Not bad. Okay, I've got through the sermon. Now, the next time I do this, however that works out in the schedule, we'll go to means of grace. Now, we had, we had the means of salvation ordained by God. And there's no use telling people about means of grace until they know means of salvation. You've got to be saved before grace is, is working in your life. Now we'll talk about practices ordained by God, whereby grace is at work changing us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these glorious truths that angels desire to look into, but you've given them to us. And may we be so full of joy and love and desire for the truth of the word that we wouldn't think about going elsewhere. Thank you for sending Messiah, raising him from the dead, and for the session at, at your right hand where he intercedes for us. We need it desperately. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, dear friends.